This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. We're going to take a look this morning at reckless decisions. What comes to your mind? You know, what comes to your mind when you think about what causes a reckless decision? What causes that? What's a cause behind reckless decisions in our world? As I think uh, about that, I think that the first place that we need to begin is by dispelling a certain myth that we oftentimes hold about reckless decisions. And that's that we think that reckless decisions, when we picture them, they're oftentimes what we're picturing those like speedy decisions, right? Those hasty choices. Uh, When we were like under the gun and we had to decide something and we just picked wrong, right? We like to think that reckless decisions are hasty decisions. And maybe we like to think that at times, at least, you know, I think in my own world. Um, because we like to give ourselves and others around us, you know, a little bit of credit, you know, that if we had enough time, if we had enough information, then we would have avoided making a reckless decision, right? But the truth is, in reality, although we might make a reckless decision in a hurry, in reality, the deciding factor of a reckless decision is never time. Time is isn't a sufficient answer for a cause of a reckless decision. Point in case, my mother actually uh, teaches a portion of of employee orientation at a hospital back in Kansas. Whenever she teaches this class, she always uses these couple of pictures to to make a point here. Uh, It's a picture, these kinds of pictures right here. This is one of the ones she uses. That's a two-ton boulder held up by a toothpick. That's a ladder on top of a ladder. Uh, that's a, you know, electrician's worst nightmare. And finally, my favorite, the handyman's secret weapon, duct tape, right? Things you can do with that stuff. Now think about it. These guys and gals, they didn't do any of those things quickly. Uh, In fact, they had to engineer each of them. Some of the guys in this room probably have firsthand experience with that sort of thing. And it makes it for a great example in a safety class because it's so telling that time isn't the reason for a reckless decision, but priority is. We like to think that if we had enough time to consider our options, we would obviously avoid making reckless decisions, wherever they might be. But that's just not the case. In fact, if we're being honest, most of the reckless decisions that we've ever made Uh, weren't made um, because we had to make them right then and there. They weren't those kinds of decisions. But we made them in a hurry, not because we were forced to, but because we chose to. Because we wanted to prioritize speed. Because we wanted to prioritize excitement or ego or whatever. Priorities, not time, are the cause behind truly reckless decisions. And in life, We know this to be true because when we start considering the reckless choices that we've made or the reckless choices and decisions of others around us that affected us, rarely did those decisions ever like happen just overnight. 
Usually, instead, they were one reckless decision on top of another reckless decision, right? That eventually landed us in that mess. Wasn't it usually like trying to, you know, beat the stop sign, beat the, I mean, the stoplight once that led to trying to beat it twice that led to texting while trying to beat the stoplight, right? It was one reckless choice on top of another. It was trying to overlook those issues in the boyfriend stage that led to trying to look, overlook those issues in the husband stage. It was choice upon choice. It was risk upon risk. It landed you and others around you in a mess. Reckless decisions are built on priorities and are rarely alone. At some point in our lives, the reckless decisions that we're making or those around us are making will come back around. Young or old, male or female, sinner or saint, we all know decisions have consequences. Choices really do matter. So I want to help us in here who are followers of Christ this morning identify reckless decisions in the life of a Christian and learn how to deal with its consequences. Now, even if you're not a, a follower of, of Jesus in here this morning, I want to invite you to, to listen in because you might be able to see from a different angle this morning why at times you have that disagreement with that friend, that parent, that spouse um, that is a Christian because that disagreement, although seeming random, may be at the heart of it a disagreement in priorities. They're defined by what they believe that makes certain decisions seem reckless that you don't think are reckless. We'll see some potential examples of those. So I want to invite you um, to see this this morning from a passage in the scriptures this morning from uh, 1 Samuel, about halfway through uh, 1 Samuel. I believe God's offering us some specific help and understanding from this passage here. Now by this time in the book of 1 Samuel, We've seen how Israel, the country in question here, has asked for a king. And they were told when they asked that this is a really bad idea. And then they were given time to think about it. And they still decided, we want a king. Because their priorities were that they wanted to be as happy and as safe as what they saw as other nations around them. And so in the book, God says, okay, we're going to give you a king, a king named Saul, who looks the part, but doesn't have the heart. Who looks the part, but doesn't have the heart. Came up with that rhyme all by myself, just in case you were wondering. And, um, and in this uh, moment here, God is teaching Israel something about what really matters in a decision. That although Saul here looks the part, doesn't have the heart, and what we quickly realize in this case study that picks up in chapters 13 through 15 is that specifically, God's priorities and Saul's priorities are not the same. Though, although he looks like a king, he doesn't have the heart of a king that God needs. And so he's, we see in his decisions, the reality of this, that time and again, his decisions are foolish. They're decisions that, that don't make sense they don't, because they don't line up with God's priorities. And so in chapter 13, verse 14, the prophet Samuel, who's a key player in all of this, he utters a famous line of scripture that if you grew up going to church, you've heard before. He said, 
this line, verse 14, the Lord had sought out a man after his own heart. His own heart. God doesn't share Saul's priorities. And Saul does not share God's. And so God is now selecting someone else who values what he values to lead his people. And then to illustrate that point in chapter 14, God takes Saul's son, who uh, is named Jonathan. And it's, what, great name, by the way. Um, and in spite of being uh, in a military crisis where Jonathan is outgunned, he's outmanned, he's being outmaneuvered uh, by the Philistine army, a people group who lived on the coast of modern-day Israel. He's in this tight spot, but God takes Jonathan, who has this amazing faith in God's ability to deliver Israel, and he gives them an equally amazing victory. A victory that in verse 23 is described in this way. It says, so the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. The language that's used here in this passage to describe this victory, it's actually the same language that is used to describe the victory at the Red Sea when God destroys the Egyptian army. So this, this is, is, is it's trying to indicate to us, it's, it's giving us the, 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 the prompting that this is huge, right? This is, this is amazing. This is a big, big deal. What God is doing is he is taking an amazing opportunity that is ripe for the picking, and he's putting the ball in Saul's court. He's giving him everything he needs, and he's giving Saul a chance. Bill Shell, what he truly values. And so Saul responds by, you know, kind of asking God what to do and then just deciding to go for it. And in verse 24, we pick things up and we read this. Chapter 14, verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So, or the word because, can also be translated here, Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am revenged on my enemies. So now the people tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Picture what's happening here. Imagine if you were running a marathon. Because the distance that these guys are traveling in this passage is somewhere around 18 miles over like really rough terrain of valleys and draws. Along the way, by the way, they're having to do hand-to-hand combat uh, just to stay alive. And so they come and they are starving to this forest. So imagine if you're running that marathon and then suddenly Cinnabon shows up on the right. And that scent is just wafting through the street, right? Can you imagine the torture that that would do to you? That smell would be driving your stomach up and down, right? Man, well, that's what's happening here. The honey is dripping, right? Honey in that day and time. This was the the delicacy, okay? Uh, This is ancient times. Honey is the best that there is. It's as good as it gets. You'd have to be scared out of your mind to not eat it. Well, that's what's happening here. Well, Jonathan, he comes along in this next verse, and he, not knowing what Saul had said, 
goes ahead and he sees the honey and he uh, eats a little bit of it. And of course, in the very next moment, somebody comes by and says, hey, by the way, your dad said if anybody eats anything during the day, you know, they're doomed. Well, Jonathan, to his credit, only eats a little bit. He stops when he finds out, but he responds. In verse 29, he sizes up the situation. He says, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright, or, or the word energized? Because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. Catch this. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. In other words, this was a foolish choice. And it's hurting our win. God did something great. But now it's not as great because of someone's reckless decision. Decision was built on ego. So the day goes on in the passage. And as Napoleon said, an army marches on its stomach. So night comes. And when these guys get to the camp, they are so hungry that they literally start to eat raw meat. I know those of you in here who like your steak on the rare side aren't picking up what's wrong with this. The rest of us who don't like the taste of salmonella are. But in particular, for a Jew during this time, this was breaking Old Testament ceremonial law to be eating meat with the blood in it. Maybe that's still true today. I don't know. But, you know, uh, check out your steak, right? Um, Old Testament ceremonial law is being violated here. It's a sin. This is a big deal. You have to be ready to keel over, right? You know, to, to be willing to do that as a Jew. And so King Saul has to get involved here. He gets upset with them, even though he pushed them to this point. And he kind of fixes the situation. But we, what we notice here is that Saul is willing to uh, catch this. He's willing to fix the situation for all these people who broke God's law but kept his oath. They broke God's law, but they kept his oath, which sets us up then for the end of the story where we find out what happens with Jonathan, who broke Saul's oath, but had kept God's law. We find out what happens next. Verse 36, and Saul said, let's go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let's not leave a man of them. And they said, the people, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let's draw near to God here. Let's pray, right? And so Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he, God, did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all the leaders of the people, and know and see, how has this sin arisen today? Now note, that's Saul's interpretation of the events, okay? Verse 39 for as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, foreshadow, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. They said to all of Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other. And the people said to Saul, it seems good to you. They know it's not their fault. Therefore Saul said, O Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or my son Jonathan, O Lord God, give Urm. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. Right, Urm and Thummim here, this is an ancient practice that a priest would do. Uh, think of it kind of like flipping a coin here. All right? 
Heads, you're guilty. Tails, I'm guilty. And Saul and Jonathan were taken. Probably much to Saul's surprise. Verse 42. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Now note here, God has been silent during this whole time. I believe it's because he's allowing Saul here to show his true colors. To show his true priorities when the chips are down. So it goes on in verse 43. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I've tasted a little honey on the tip of my staff and that, that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Jonathan said, or Saul said, um, God do so to me, and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Wow. And the people said to Saul, So Jonathan die? Who's worked this great salvation for Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair on his head fall to the ground, for he has what? He has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So take note of what's happening here. Saul's priorities matter more to him than God's priorities. Saul's priorities are so important to him that he's actually resisting God's priorities. He's actually marring the victory that God's setting up here. His priorities matter so much to him that he's willing to go to extreme ends to make them reality. God's priorities are not on the radar. Saul's priorities are marked here by the kinds of ego-driven, reckless decisions that we would expect from somebody that doesn't share God's heart. For here, it's like Saul is saying, you've read God's law, it's okay. You know, we can figure things out. But if you break my law, you're going to die. It's just reckless. His priorities are all mixed up. And what ends up happening as a result is reckless decision after reckless decision. And when we step back and we look at this passage as, as followers of Christ, we see that reckless decisions are a mark of resistance to God's priorities. Reckless decisions resist God's priorities. Let me explain. See, as a Christian, when we are willing to compromise what God wants in order to get what we want, we've made a reckless decision. That's how Scripture looks at a reckless decision. That's why men and women in the Bible can do all kinds of things that the world is looking at calling reckless and God is calling faithful. That's why in this passage here, you can take a guy like Jonathan who takes one guy and God delivers this amazing victory. A choice that the world would call as being a reckless, ridiculous choice and inspire that, God is calling it faithful. That's what's going on. But, uh, but what we see in here is then a choice that is in line with the world's priorities, biblically, is marked as reckless. Priority determines what's reckless. I remember seeing a vivid example of this in uh, my parents growing up. Because of a couple of decisions that other people had made, my family was made 
uh, to be put in a really tough spot where my uh, mother at 40 had to end up going back uh, into work and she had to start working at McDonald's was her starting point. My dad had to leave his career. He, he started working as uh, uh, selling insurance and he was horrible at it, right? Our family's finances, it was just tanking. It was horrible. And I remember though watching as my parents embraced God's priorities when it came to their money in this situation. I watched them continue to tithe when the world around them would have called it reckless. I watched them pay back every cent of the debt that they incurred. I watched them choose to not compromise under pressure because they knew what Jonathan knew, that a truly reckless decision is a decision that is not in line with God's priorities. It's a decision that rejects what God values. But that's how resistance in a life of a Christian starts to work. It's when God's priorities lose out to ours. It's when we uh, see our priorities on the rise. The truth is, is in those kinds of situations, pressure reveals true priorities. And resistance that can develop serves to slowly bring God's priorities down the ladder. As one scholar who was looking at this passage noted, how true this pattern can be in the lives of those who don't take God seriously. When God does not occupy first place, he seldom remains long in second, but is quickly relegated to lower and lower standing until he is forgotten all together. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And whether it's wealth, or it's comfort, or it's safety, you cannot serve both the world's priorities and God's. It's one or the other. Reckless decisions are the ones that resist God's priorities. As a friend of mine likes to say, by the way, no one has ever resisted God and come out a winner. No one's ever surrendered to God and lived to regret it. Sadly, though, I think many of us are so out of tune with God that we don't even know what His priorities are. We don't even know. We're making our decisions just based off of guesses. We're not sensitive to His leading. We don't know His word. We don't want to listen to any kind of advice that does anything except for fan the priorities that we are already consumed with. We're not interested in considering whether or not our greed is reckless. We're not interested in hearing about how gossip is dangerous. We're not interested in hearing about how evil bitterness or gluttony is. To change in one of those areas would require something reckless in our minds, because those are our true priorities. Messing with those seem reckless. But this is what we need to consider. And I want to show us two things from the text here. The first one is how we can start to identify some of those reckless decisions. The easiest way to identify uh, them is to consider the results. Results. Think back to the text with me. What are some of the results of the decisions that are happening in here? What do they point to? A couple of things here. 
Reckless decisions marked out in here. First is a decision that's all about you. Decision that is all about you. Decisions that don't take others into consideration should be suspect to us. It's like when uh, I hear somebody uh, tell me that they are, are going to go out because they need to find out what makes them happy. And I look at them, and I always dread this moment because I have to break the news to them that that won't work. Just going out and trying to make yourself happy won't work because that's not how happiness works, and that's not how you were made to work. That doesn't work. When we are all about ourselves, we will never be happy. Making decisions that are all about us should be suspect to us. Even if you're single and you have a small community, Paul said that the blessing is is that you have more time to prioritize what God desires. Second thing here. Second mark of a reckless decision. You're okay, but everyone else around you is hurting. As a result of your decision, you're okay, but everyone else around you is hurt. Take note This is similar to the first one, but it's different in this, that you are considering what are the results of your decision. When you decide something, notice what happens afterwards. How does it affect all the other people around you? Second clue, think about this. Your anger is disproportionate and often misdirected. This is another example that we see from the text, right? It's anger. Uh, Unfortunately, One of the easiest ways to figure out what your priorities are, what's important to you, what you value, is to simply notice what you get angry about. What do you get angry about? I didn't realize how true this was until I had children. Moms and dads, you know what I'm talking about, right? And, you know, I started realizing uh, all kinds of things I didn't know were so important to me. If you want to figure out if you're making reckless decisions in your parenting... Ask the question next time you're angry at something that your kid did, why am I angry? Why am I angry? Sometimes we're not even really angry at them. We're angry at work. It's misdirected anger. Other times we're angry, uh, but our anger is way over the top. I mean, you think that our kid murdered somebody when all they did was walk around pouring comet all over the kitchen floor. Personal experience. Uh, Right? Our anger is way over the top. It's disproportionate to what happened. And so if we're taking some account then of ourselves here, maybe we're realizing some of the reckless decisions that we're being tempted to make or that others around us have have made and are affecting us, what do we do? What do we do? This is the second issue, there we go, uh, here. And we want to ask the question, how do we deal with it? Is there a remedy Is there a remedy? I uh, am fond of telling people that I meet with or I counsel with um, that you didn't get here overnight and you won't get out of this overnight. You got here one choice at a time and you're going to get out of this one choice at a time. That statement never seems truer than when we are considering a reckless decision. We have to realize it was oftentimes rarely alone And it was based on a priority. God has to begin doing that work, and we have to open ourselves up to him beginning to change those priorities. And then we have to do as Jonathan did, as it said in verse 43, we have to work with God. So I want to give you an encouragement this morning of one practice 
for this. If, if, if this is resonating with you, one practice. It's the word reflection. Reflection. If you don't have a practice of daily spending time with Jesus, you need to start one. Now, I'm not talking about just Bible reading or something like that. Although, if you have a Bible and you can read, it should be a part of it. But what I'm talking about is spending time with Jesus where we are reflecting, where we're taking stock of what our priorities are and what they should be. When we do that kind of reflection, we're opening ourselves up for the Holy Spirit to point some things out, for us to take stock of what's going on, whether that's through journaling, whether that's through pondering, whether that's through setting aside some time. We need to take some stock of where this is going on. We have to think about what are we saying? What are we doing? What are we deciding? What are the people around us? What is our spouse doing? What are they deciding? Where are those priorities at? And what this allows the Holy Spirit to do is to begin to recalibrate things, to reset us back towards the priorities of God instead of the world's. Even when other people around us are making reckless decisions that we can't control, our practice of doing this is what allows us to then be able to confront those kinds of reckless decisions with confidence, knowing that, you know what? My priority is not people-pleasing. My priority is not fixing somebody else. My priority is what the Lord's asking of me. That's where we need to go. It's towards the area of reflection. This was what gives us the guts and it allows us to be recalibrated towards God's priorities in our life. We need that recalibration. We need to be tuned in to the right thing or we'll end up like the story of the old clockmaker. If you know this story. Well, there was a clockmaker store that a man walked past every day. As he did, he would stop at the window of the clockmaker's store and he would uh, synchronize his watch with the clock that was in the big front window. And one day, since he did this daily, the clockmaker kept noticing it. He decided to come out and strike up a conversation with the man. And he asks uh, the guy what he did for a living. And the man kind of sheepishly responds, letting him know that he was the timekeeper for the factory and that his watch has been malfunctioning for some time and so it needs daily readjustment. And since he was responsible for ringing the closing bell at the factory when everyone was supposed to go home precisely at 4 p.m., he had to synchronize his watch every single morning to guarantee that kind of precision. Well, the clockmaker looked back at him a bit more embarrassed, and he said, I hate to tell you this, but my clock doesn't work very well either. I've been adjusting it to the bell I hear every afternoon from the factory at 4 p.m. <laughs> when we set our decisions according to the wrong set of priorities, we will end up with reckless decisions that resist God, that resist His priorities. But if instead, if we begin to reflect and allow the Holy Spirit to adjust ours so that we are adopting God's priorities as our priorities, then although the world may call us reckless, 
In reality, it will only be because we have been wrecked by a loving God who has slowly turned our priorities towards Him, towards a new direction, where we are no longer resisting Him with our values, but campaigning for His priorities in the world around us. Where we are then avoiding the truly reckless decisions for decisions that will count for eternity. Amen? Would you pray with me? Lord, we need that recalibration in our heart. Lord, we are bombarded every day by everybody else's priorities. And God, we want to hear your scripture. We want to hear this call to have a heart after you that prioritizes not the world, not their way of doing things, not something else, but prioritizes what you value. And so, Lord, open us up. Open us up and do that work that only you can do through your Holy Spirit of recalibrating our hearts to be in tune with you. And this morning, Lord, if any of us in here are beginning to realize how far we are from your heart, that maybe we've never put our trust in you, that, Lord, would you for the first time convict us and invite us into that relationship with you where we are able to say, I want that living hope. I want to be a living sacrifice. And to ask that you would forgive all of our sins and that you would be the Lord of our life. You would be the priority. Lord, do that work in us. And those are the things, Lord, that we are trusting you to do. We pray those things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.